Our scripture passage for this morning is from the chapter 3 of the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, uh, verses 1 through 17. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I have uh, tried to gather what you wanted me to gather this week. And it's just a few loaves and just a few fish and... It's not enough. And it's not good enough to feed your people. So my confidence now is that when I place those meager loaves into your hands, you will multiply. And you will feed your people. You love us. You have compassion upon us. And you mean to shepherd us now through your word. And so we pray that you would do that. And we pray that even in these minutes this morning, you'd be pleased to call some to yourself for the very first time and make this the day of their salvation. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, last week we looked at uh, chapter three, kind of the big picture of chapter three, and particularly uh, 
what chapter 3 teaches us about the kingdom of heaven, uh, which is Matthew's uh, main term for the kingdom of God. Same thing. It's just Matthew's uh, preferred a term for the rule of God. That's really what the kingdom means. It's it's not a, a space so much as it is a, a statement about God's rule, his active rule. And we looked at that uh, through the lens of John's preaching and also how Jesus's baptism uh, fulfills uh, the content of John's uh, preaching. And this week, before we head off into uh, chapter four and uh, the account of our Lord's temptation in the wilderness, I wanted to make sure that we paused and we focused in on the very important teaching in this chapter on the Trinity. Uh, this is a very critical uh, chapter uh, for purposes of clarifying uh, what God wants us to understand about the Trinity. We could have approached this in uh, any one of a number of places in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, but particularly because of verses 16 and 17, uh, where we see all three persons in the Trinity all together, uh, Jesus, the Spirit descending like a dove, and the Father's voice uh, speaking. Uh, this, I think, is as good a place as any. And so we're going to look at... Uh, this by asking the question this morning uh, of chapter three, who is Jesus Christ? According to Matthew three, and we're going to see that Matthew three gives us three answers. First, he is fully God. And these are our headings this morning. Second, he is fully man. And thirdly, he is a member of the Trinity. We can't understand Jesus's identity, who he really is apart from his relationship with both the Father and the Spirit. And so before we dive into the headings, let me, uh, let me kind of address some, some uh, preliminary uh, questions. And you might say, well, why are we, this is very doctrinal. Um, isn't this better for Sunday school than it is for worship? And that's a fair question. I think there's a good answer to that. And, and it's this. What does it mean to... To love God. It means to love him as he is and for who he is. And God in his essential nature is one God in three persons. And those persons are distinct persons. They're all equally God. They all possess all the attributes of God. They're equal in power and glory. And they're each deserving and worthy of our worship. And that's who God is. It is one of the distinctives of Christianity that we worship of what we call a triune God, a God who is both three and one. This is what sets us apart. One of the things that sets us apart from Judaism, one of the things that sets us apart from Islam. It's one of the things that sets us apart from um, from cults like Mormonism and the Jehovah's Witnesses. And it's absolutely essential to our identity. It's essential to the gospel. Friends, Islam is here in our country. It's in our neighborhoods. It's in our county. And Islam purports to be a radically monotheistic faith. 
their key objection to Christianity has to do with our doctrine of the Trinity. And we, as the people of God, need to be conversant with how Scripture reveals God to be triune and to see how His triune nature is absolutely essential to the good news of the Gospel. The Trinity is full of great mystery, no doubt about it. And I don't have any illusions about being able to answer all your questions or even all the questions I have about the Trinity this morning. But there's also great clarity here. And we need to celebrate it. We need to marvel at it. We need to worship God because of it. And sometimes people will say, or they'll wonder, they'll say, well, now wait a second. If God is Trinity, then how come this isn't clearer in the Old Testament? Well, I'm helped by a couple of observations here. First is an analogy from B.B. Uh, Warfield, who was a professor at Princeton Seminary uh, back in the heyday of Princeton. And he said, the Old Testament, this has really helped me. I hope this helps you. He says, the Old Testament is like a richly furnished room that is only dimly lit. And so when the light comes in fullness in Jesus Christ in the New Testament, when the word becomes flesh and the light is at its brightest, then what we discover is what has always been in the room all along. This reality of God's uh, triune nature, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. But it wasn't until the light was brought by Jesus that we could see what had been there all along in the room from the beginning. You see, when we're talking about uh, the Trinity, we're talking about God's inner being. We're talking about his most fundamental nature. And there's a sense in which there's no way that any of us could understand that from the outside. Only someone who was inside that life himself if he came to us who are outside that inner life, then one from who is inside that inner life, he can explain it to us. And that's exactly what happens in the New Testament. The Son has come and he's explaining to us uh, who God actually is. It's so beautiful. It's so lovely. This is not a math problem. It's a call to worship. And it's at the very heart of what makes the gospel good news. So let's look first, friends, at uh, the, the first truth about Jesus Christ that Matthew 3 gives us, which is that Jesus is fully God. And that's proven uh, from verse 3, where uh, Matthew uh, quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3. Now, let me just say something here about how the deity, how how the deity, the godness, the godhood of Jesus is proven throughout the New Testament. This is not some a secret that's kept in a corner in the New Testament. It's not some obscure point on the periphery of the New Testament. It's everywhere. It is absolutely everywhere. It's the spinal cord that holds the whole message of the New Testament together. And the way the New Testament presents the, the deity, the godness of Jesus is in a variety of different ways. Sometimes those ways, the proofs of Jesus' deity, are much more direct. So, for example, 
good rule of thumb for you to remember if you want to keep in your mind. Where would I go in the New Testament to, to, uh, to, to make the case for Jesus' deity? Think about the ones. Think about John 1. Think about Colossians 1. Think about Hebrews 1. That's a good rule of thumb. Not limited to those. But those are examples of where the proof of Jesus' deity is very explicit. But there's another kind of proof which is everywhere in the New Testament. That's the more implicit uh, proof of Jesus' deity. No less clear, uh, but implicit. And that's what Matthew 3 really is. You see, it's the sequence of events here that proves that Jesus is God in a very striking way. That's what Matthew is telling us. The first thing he does is Matthew introduces uh, John the Baptist in his preaching. That's in verses 1 and 2. He says, John came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Uh, His message is uh, to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then, so after he identifies John, describes Jesus' preaching, he then identifies John as the voice of of the one crying in the wilderness. Matthew's quoting Isaiah 43 here. Now, that's really important. And Matthew's uh, Jewish audience would have immediately recognized this. He says, John is the one who was crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And then what's the next thing that happens in the chapter? Jesus shows up. So you see what... Matthew's point, it's unmistakable, it's shocking, but it's unmistakable. He's saying, okay, John's ministry was the ministry that had been prophesied in Isaiah 40. Somebody who would be crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. He's not the messenger is not the Lord. He goes ahead of the Lord. And that's who John was. And then the next thing that happens in the chapter is that Jesus shows up. You see, the implication is this. That Jesus is the Lord of Isaiah 40. Now, that's very powerful. And by itself, that's totally stunning. Especially to a Jewish audience. But when you think about what is involved in Isaiah 40, it becomes even more stunning. We don't have time to read it this morning. I encourage you to not finish this day, friends, without reading Isaiah chapter 40. In fact, I'm going to give you another tip. I gave you the three ones. If you want to know the book of Isaiah, you want to know what you've got to know in the book of Isaiah, you've got to know chapter 6. You've got to know chapter 40. And you've got to know chapter 53. I just spared you 63 chapters. I expect some thanks for that. If we were going to, if we were going to draw the, the Old Testament's vision of God, if we were going to Make it like a topographical map, you know, where the lines show the different elevations. Well, Isaiah 40 would be the Himalayas of the Old Testament's vision of God. There is no higher vision of God in the entire Old Testament. And Matthew is showing us that Jesus is the Lord of Isaiah 40. And remember who the Lord is in Isaiah 40. He's the one who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hands. He's the one who's marked off the heavens uh, with a span. He's the one for whom the nations are but a single drop 
in the bucket. He's the one who puts princes in place and then blows them down like stubble. And he's the one who named every single one of the stars in the heavens and holds them all by his power so that not one of them is missing. And that is who Matthew is reminding us Jesus is. He is that Lord. It would be impossible to pick a more aggressive, if you will, non-subtle place from the Old Testament to assert Jesus' full deity, to assert that Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. You couldn't pick a more aggressive text than Isaiah 40. And on top of that, friends, there was no people group in all the earth less prepared by their history, less prepared by their theological heritage to be quick to acknowledge that God could become flesh than the Jews. And yet here, right out of the Old Testament, what we're being told is that Jesus, Yahweh, the Lord of Isaiah 40, has come in the flesh. Now, that may feel to you like this kind of uh, technical, you know, theological minutiae and, uh, you know, that this is something that is better left in seminary. Oh, friends, this is not some abstract theological point that has no connection with your life. It has every connection with your life because it is absolutely essential to the gospel. Unless Jesus Christ, unless Jesus of Nazareth was fully God, there is no gospel. Unless Jesus of Nazareth was and is fully God, there is no forgiveness. There is no pardon. There is no reconciliation to God. There is no resurrection. There is no meaningful sacrifice on the cross. But friends, because Jesus was fully God, that means his life of obedience to God's law was perfect and unblemished. Something that yours could never be. Something that mine could never be. Because Jesus Christ was and is fully God, He was able to sustain on the cross our human nature under the full weight of the wrath of God. The eternal punishment for the sins of everyone who trusts in Christ was actually borne by Jesus. Something that no mere human if he was only a man, could ever do. And because Jesus was and is fully God, that means that his death had a worth, had a value, and a power that could never be exhausted. Do you understand that, friends? That because Jesus Christ was and is fully God, that means that on the authority of God's Word, I can hold out to you this morning the promise that Jesus Christ is still today able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him. If He was just a man, that promise could not be made. That would be a false offer. And you would be under no obligation to respond to that call. But because Jesus Christ was and is fully God, 
It's a true offer of the gospel. And it's a summons that for you to refuse is to compound your sin. There is no such thing as neutrality. And maybe he's saying, wait a second. Come on. God becoming man. I, I mean, I think Jesus is a great guy. Don't get me wrong. In fact, I would even be willing to say that he was the greatest man who ever lived. I would be willing to say that he was the wisest man who ever lived, the most moral man who ever lived. In fact, I'd be willing to put him in a category all by himself and say he is the best man who ever lived. We'll just call him an exalted man. Isn't that good enough? You see, a lot of people do that. When you start talking to them about Christ, their defensive move is say, well, you know, you know, you're saying that this is the word become flesh. This is God in the flesh. You know, I, I can't handle that. I mean, I, I want to I, I don't want to completely repudiate Jesus, but I want to I, I don't want to acknowledge he's God because if he's God, I actually have to do something about it. He actually has rights over me. He has legitimate claims over not just part of my life, not just the Sunday 10 to 12 part. He has parts over everything, my whole week, my whole wallet, my body, my mind, everything. So let's just say I'll honor him by saying he's an exalted man. Oh, friends, that that leaves you with no gospel for two big reasons. One is what it means is if Jesus is just some kind of exalted man, that means that he's not qualified to be anyone's mediator. He's not God, and he's not a real human being, which means that he's some kind of third category. So he can't be what the New Testament says he is, which is that he's the one mediator between God and man. And the reason he's able to be such a powerful mediator is because he is the God-man. He can represent men to God and God to men. So if Jesus is just an exalted man, he is no mediator. And if he's just an exalted man, that means that all he is is an exalted example for us, which immediately means that grace is gone. It immediately means that hope is gone. It immediately means that the glory of God is undermined. There is no grace. There is no grace if Jesus is just this exalted example, because if you actually pay attention to what kind of life this one lived, and if you think that the way to please God is you have to live just like him, and that God's message for you is that you will only please God when your life is in full conformity to the way Jesus lived, then you will die. You can't face the truth. Because he's just too good. And if Jesus is just an exalted example, there's no grace because that means that we have to follow his example. There's no hope then because we can never live up to that example. And there's no glory of God because that means that our salvation is just a joint venture with God. You see how critical it is that Jesus, to every aspect of the gospel, to the reality of grace, salvation as a gift, to the reality of a hope that is grounded not in what I can achieve, what you can achieve, but in what God 
has achieved in Jesus Christ. There's something stable. There's something that can last. There's something with an immeasurably deep quality that no scrutiny will ever turn up a flaw in. Friends, that's what God calls us to trust in. That's why the gospel is actually good news. Because God has done what we could never do for ourselves in Jesus Christ. And this just blows me away. This just, this just takes my breath away. Here's the Lord of Isaiah 40. The nations are just a drop, just one drop in his bucket. And here is the humble Jesus of Nazareth who's presenting himself to be baptized. Now, will the real God please stand up? Don't you see? Jesus is the fullest clearest revelation of God there has ever been. If you want to know God, it is not to pit Isaiah 40. It's not to pit the Himalayas against going under the waters of baptism. This is God. This is God. This is the fullest revelation of God there's ever been. Friends, that means that in Jesus, we're not choosing between The Lord Almighty and the Lord as a servant. The Lord Almighty is the servant. And you know what struck me about this? I I just was overcome by the implications that that reality of who Jesus is has for how hateful my pride is in the sight of God. Oh, how that God just has used that like a laser beam to show me how proud I am. And of course, that humility continues, continues until the cross. What must the heart of God be like? I don't know what ideas about God you brought into this room, but friends, this reality that in this Jesus of Nazareth is the God who made the stars going under the waters of baptism, that this God would do that. What does it show us about his heart? Isn't it impossible to be cynical about a God like that? Isn't it impossible to be proud in the face of a God like that? Isn't it impossible, or it ought to be, to be cold-hearted to him? That he would take on, that he would become incarnate and take on a body so that he could be slapped in my place. So that he could be spat upon. So that he could be mocked in that body and ultimately desecrated on the cross for me. What does it say about the true nature of God? Doesn't it, doesn't it tell me that my entire life I've underestimated him, I've undervalued him, and I've belittled him with my mind and my life? Oh, friends. If the Almighty One was willing to do and to be that, then what songs I ever sing could ever be good enough to capture all that He's been willing to do? What what passion and intensity of worship would ever adequately express who He is and what He's been willing to do for me? What love I could ever offer Him would, would ever begin to even approach the out outermost fringes 
of the depth and, of, and intensity of his love for us. To do that for sinners. What greater call could there ever be to repentance? What greater call could there ever be to faith? God literally gave God for sinners like us. But the wonders don't end there. Because Jesus Christ is not only fully God, he's also fully man. The manhood of Jesus. Now that's a little bit easier to demonstrate from our uh, text because Jesus shows up as a man. John doesn't, and he shows up as a man to be baptized. And he, John doesn't deal with him like a ghost. He doesn't say, oh, it's a ghost. You don't look human. He's a real human being. He goes in the water. Notice the text does not say he went all the way under. This is not an immersion text. Sorry, Presbyterian pastor has to point that out. Just says he got in the water and came up out of the water. Doesn't say he went all the way under. Please note that. See, we you know we get so used to reading the Bible in particular ways that no matter what the words say or don't say, we see it. Okay, back on track. So Jesus comes as a man. And again, this is not another abstract. He's baptized just like another, all the other people who got baptized. He's a real person, real human. And this, too, is not some abstract, you know, way out, ivory tower kind of theological thing. Here again, unless Jesus Christ was and is fully man, just like you and me, not an exalted man, but fully man, just like you and me, there's no gospel. No gospel. Now, there was a, in the early centuries of the church, end of the first century and and beginning of the second century, there was a false teaching that arose. Because, I mean, let's, let's just be honest. This is hard to understand, right? I mean, this is mysterious. And so it's not surprising that there would be confusion about how to express this. And, you know, I, I am sympathetic with the tension to guard, to guard the glory of God. And yet sometimes in our jealousy to guard God's glory, we end up defending God against God, and that's wrong. And so there was a a, a false teaching that arose uh, at the end of the first century and beginning of the second century. And what it basically held was that Jesus appeared to be a man, but he wasn't really a man. The word didn't actually become flesh, but just appeared to become flesh. And what that means then is that Jesus, the reason God did that is so that Jesus would be this great example for us. But that that's a problem. Right. That's a problem from two sides all at once. What that does is that undermines both the human element of the gospel and also the God element of the gospel. It undermines the humanity. Most obviously, what it does is it attacks the gospel from both sides. It's fatal to the gospel from two sides simultaneously. On the one hand, if Jesus just appeared to be a man and wasn't an actual man with a circulatory and a nervous system like yours and mine with a stomach and eyes and ears like mine, then that means that whatever we see in Jesus that appears to be human is nothing better than a facade. He's no different than the backdrops you see when you go to Universal Studios on the movie set. It looks like a house. It's painted like a house. It's very realistic. But you can't live there. 
Because there's nothing behind the facade. There's no shelter. There's no home. But the gospel is the news that God has made a home for us in the manhood of Jesus Christ. One of the early church fathers, a guy named Gregory of Nazianzus. Oh, you're thinking about him this morning, weren't you? Fourth century, one of the heroes. When we do the Nicene Creed, Gregory of Nazianzus is one of the one of the courageous defenders of the right formulation of the Nicene Creed so that the deity of Christ was upheld. But he said this about the human nature of Christ. He says, without the human nature of Christ, there is no gospel because that which was not assumed cannot be healed. That which was not assumed cannot be healed. And Gregory's saying that unless Jesus was fully man, then our humanity can't be healed. We are actual men and women who have actual sins. We have an actual debt to God. And unless that debt is actually paid by another actual man, guess what? We're not healed. But it's also fatal to the gospel, not just from the human side, but also from God's side. Because if, if Jesus just appears to be a man and it's all just a facade, then that means something else which cuts at the very heart of the gospel. And that means that God was either unwilling or unable to become man so that he might redeem us. And the gospel gives us a God who not only was able, but willing to do that for his people. I can't think of a greater call to repentance. I can't think of how it would make any sense to withhold yourself from that God. Finally, Jesus is a member of the Trinity. And in a sense, I've been talking about that altogether already. The Trinity is in our text, as I pointed out at the beginning. Look at verses 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. So Jesus, the incarnate Son, is there. Uh, the Spirit is descending upon him uh, like a dove and the Father's voice acclaiming the Son. So what we have here is very clear proof that one of the classic explanations of the Trinity is actually mistaken. Now, the one thing you must never do is try to come up with some analogy for the Trinity because any analogy you pick is just deciding which heresy you're going to teach. So maybe you've heard the, the, the analogy that uh, the Trinity is like a washing machine with three cycles. Wash, spin, and I don't know what the other one is. Dry? That can't be it. Or maybe you've heard the analogy that the Trinity is like, is like water. You know, water is ice. It can also, so it's a solid. It can also be a gas and it can be a liquid. Well, you notice the problem with each of those is the same water can't be simultaneously liquid, solid, and gas, can it? And the same, I'm sorry, the same washing machine, whatever the three cycles are. It can't be all those cycles all at the same time. And what you see here in verses 16 and 17 is that there, is actually th- there are actually three persons in the Trinity. 
They're distinct. They're all equally God, but together they are but one God. That means that in God there is both a threeness and a oneness. Both a threeness and a oneness. And every error about the Trinity elevates one of those at the expense of the other. And so God is both three and one. That's biblical orthodoxy. Now, how does that relate to the gospel? Well, it relates to the gospel in this way. Both are essential to the gospel. The oneness of God is essential to the gospel and the threeness of God is essential to the gospel. How is the oneness of God essential to the gospel? Oh my goodness, this is wonderful. The fact that God is one means that there is one will in God. It means that with respect to the salvation of uh, God's people, there is no disagreement within the Trinity. The Son is not overcoming the Father's reluctance to save. The Father doesn't need to be persuaded to save. The Son is sent by the Father and the Spirit doesn't have to be uh, brought out of of his own reluctance to apply the work of the Son to the people of God. The Spirit is just as engaging. You can see it here in Matthew 3, right? All three members of the Trinity together, unanimously endorsing the mission of the Son. I think of that verse from Ecclesiastes 4.12, a cord, a single cord of three strands is not easily torn apart. And this table, friends, doesn't it increase your appreciation for what this table represents to understand that this is not some solo venture that the Son of God has undertaken for himself and for his people without the active involvement and blessing of the Father and the Spirit at every stage. This reality of the oneness of God and the singleness of purpose within the Godhead to save sinners in a way that would elevate the righteousness of God, the justice of God, and the mercy of God at the same time to know that this table is the fruit of agreement, passionate agreement within the Godhead makes it much bigger and sweeter. And the threeness of God also matters and is essential to the gospel because it means that the power and the love that are at the heart of the gospel, friends, are so much bigger than we thought. You see, sometimes we think about Jesus after his baptism, just basically on his own. And that's a very unbiblical way to think about it. Because, you know, every step of the way, every facet of Jesus' ministry, everything that he undertook, everything that he endured, was, was everything that he's given to his people is something in which both the Father and the Spirit have also been involved in. The writer to the Hebrews talks about how it was through the eternal spirit that Jesus offered himself to God. Now think about that. It's the spirit's work in Jesus that 
is involved in Jesus' love for the church and his compassion for the church, uh, producing in him that courage and that faithfulness and that steadfastness that enabled him to sit at that table with disciples, one of whom would betray him and all of whom uh, would deny him and run away from him, to remain steadfast and beyond that to go into the garden. And even when he was under the silence of his father. Still, it was through the power of the eternal spirit that he was enabled to go to the cross and even on the cross to be able to endure that infinite weight of God's wrath and his isolation there. It was through the spirit's involvement in Jesus's life and death that that sacrifice was consummated and that sacrifice was designed and received Gladly by the Father. Friends, the threeness of God is essential to the gospel's good news and essential to the good news that we're going to celebrate at this table. So let's pray. O Father, O Son, O Holy Spirit, we bless you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we